0: Hi there, we have a favor to ask. If you're enjoying the DLC Live podcast and you're listening on a platform that lets you leave a rating or a review, leave us a five-star rating. Maybe take a minute to write a quick review. It really helps and we really appreciate it. Now let's get on with the show. Welcome to DLC Live, your source for educational and inspirational interviews with mental health experts and advocates from around the world. Now, here's your host, Creator of the DLC Anxiety Worldwide Mental Health Community, Dean Stott.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to episode seven of the recovery room. We are here. Take three. We've already tried this twice. Um hopefully everyone in the panel's here. Hope everyone's having a great day. Let's just see um what you guys have been asking um throughout the week. So it's a quick QA with the panelists. We call it the recovery room because the Four people on the panel. Uh, we're at the end of the recovery, but we're all on our individual journey to recovery. So everyone in the room is on their specific journey. Um, so yeah, let's get the panelists on and uh, let's get cracking. Kim. Hi. Josh and no Drew.
2: Classic Drew, he's always late.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he's here. Is he in the comments, yeah?
2: Classic Drew.
1: Right, I, just want... please, I really hope it works. Just... Technology, technology. Just, man. just,
2: just want to get, just want to get on with it. And Drew's always <laughs> holding this up. Get... You can't, can't, count on me for anything.
0: Here
1: he is. Excellent. <laughs> I know we did a. If we can just do a quick introduction just for everyone who's joining now. Uh, Kim, um, Josh, then Drew.
3: Hello, my name is Kimberly Quinlan. I'm a marriage and family therapist. I specialize in OCD and anxiety disorders and eating disorders. And I'm really happy to be here. I am the author of an upcoming book. I do not have a book to hold up. um, And I'm the host of Your Anxiety Toolkit.
2: Fantastic, Josh. Hi, I'm Joshua Fletcher. I'm a psychotherapist registered here in the UK. Um I specialize in anxiety disorders and esteem related anxiety uh anything that anxiety is related to um yeah it's um yeah i love doing these on a Friday, and uh look forward to seeing what uh, my buddies have been up to
1: <laughs> fantastic, and last but certainly not least Drew,
0: yeah, uh, I'm Drew Linsalata. I'm creator and host of another anxiety podcast called The Anxious Truth uh, and author of a book called The Anxious Truth, which is an anxiety recovery guide. And I used to be just like you guys, like like everybody here has. So I'm here just to share my experience and the things I've learned over 30 years of dealing with this. And plus, I like hanging out with these guys. They're my buddies.
1: That sounds, yeah. That sounds great. I reckon we're just going to yeah, say Yeah, I'm going to firstly Josh um you've had a week off how was your week off um, are you feeling revived and ready for the new week next week
2: Uh no I've had a long journey today I've got back here this is the <laughs> last thing I wanted to do I'd hate I didn't even want to interact with anyone but alas I'm here doing you all a favor uh,
1: Legend legend <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, i'll kick start with the questions um so the quite a few questions have been submitted the first one is can i turn schizophrenic due to an anxiety disorder i had the to same question
2: me you? too <laughs> yes me too <laughs> um
1: I, kim do you want to start off with that one
3: um so I'm curious to hear what the others have to say. I think my first like reaction to this question, because I had the, the same question asked multiple times, is I try to be really careful, particularly when I do Q&As on Instagram, to not engage and give too much reassurance. Now, often... Mm-hmm some some of these questions may be genuine, like really genuine curiosity. However, what I find really commonly, particularly with my community is these types of questions can on, sometimes be an attempt to remove whatever uncertainty and anxiety they have. And while I totally get that that's a, a, a normal reaction, what we want to also do is before we ask questions, also check in and Is this actually a compulsion that's going to keep me in this cycle of asking this question over and over again to relieve myself of uncertainty? So I'm quite happy for us to answer that question. I think the thing to remember is even if I said yes or no, that's probably not going to relieve you of your uncertainty because all your brain has to say is, well, what if they're wrong or what if it happens to me or what if I'm the 1%? Um, and so, usually, what I'll often say is, it's really more important to tolerate uncertainty. That's where your long-term recovery exists.
1: Mm. Uh, yeah, that Good. sounds
2: fantastic. <clears throat> um, Josh, do you want to get? Oh, our, our trolls back. Hi, I know. Dude. Oh, he's, um, he's early this time. He was late last time. Well, I know. Well, yeah. I know. Make it because it's rude happy, when you arrive late. Happy Friday, <laughs>
3: trolls. Yeah. Happy Absolutely. Friday. It's um, actually just the five of us each week. We all and we have, give him a spotlight each week as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. He's the fifth man. Yeah, I don't know
1: about I, I our Well, really lo- this guy's getting the most exposure out of everything.
2: <laughs> I reckon it's I reckon it's Dean. I reckon he, he pays his yeah. people to come on. And put <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, co- it's cooler to have a troll, isn't it? But like if, you, if you're being trolled, yeah. then you're obviously someone important, yeah. and that's great. Like, where's my troll? I want one. Like, anyway, um, I know. Um, yeah, I hear this. What if I develop schizophrenia? What if I go crazy? Now, Kimberly just answered using the OCD framework, which is 100% correct. For me, though, I just say quite simply no. Panic disorder cannot make you go crazy. What, maybe if you look through the history books, there's someone who had something comorbid with panic disorder, and yes, they developed <laughs> schizophrenia but they're mutually exclusive, they're, 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 that's not the same part of the brain, um, it's it's not, don't get me wrong, people with schizophrenia, no anxiety, um, but in a, in a short answer, no, and I know, because I had that question, am I going crazy, um, am I developing schizophrenia, and actually that's where factual reassurance can help, in the sense that having someone sit down, a psychologist, sit to me and say, no, what you're feeling is not schizophrenia, actually really helped me, because then I could then dismiss it as just anxiety. Where it's difficult to dismiss something as just anxiety, when you've got to go full on in, into the uncertainty mode, when actually, when you're really high in the panic disorder mode, you need a bit of reassurance to bring you down first, because I've been there and it's hell on earth. So yeah, can you get schizophrenia from from anxiety? No. Can you get anxiety from schizophrenia? Yes, but no. Your anxiety will not trigger schizophrenia. Greg?
0: I I can't really add much to that. I I think I would say that in this instance, maybe schizophrenia is a placeholder for the general idea of some sort of break, uh, a mental breakdown, being overwhelmed too much, can't handle it, going to some permanently damaged state. What I often tell people is that the way out of that fear is to go ahead, go go ahead, become schizophrenic, like, go ahead. Like, you have to let go of whatever you think that you're tr- you're doing that's keeping that from happening, and and then it doesn't, and then it doesn't again, and then it doesn't again, and, and really, that's kind of, which is super scary, don't get me wrong, I know that's not an easy thing to do, but, you know, once you've been reassured, once, two, three, four, five times, it's time to let go, and then just, I guess I'm going to have to let it happen, and then it doesn't. And that's the only way that you'll actually ever believe what Kim and Josh said.
2: Right? Yeah. So, yeah. It depends. It, if, yeah. if you've got an OCD style, I think this is just another theme of your OCD. Then yeah, Kimberly's yeah. answer for me is perfect. You've got to practice that uncertainty. But if it's a genuine yeah. worry, like, Oh my God, I'm new to these symptoms. I feel like I'm going crazy. Then absolutely. No, you you're not, you're not developed. You're not going crazy. Not to say that people with schizophrenia are crazy. They're not. What I'm saying is, right. it's what Drew just said. Then that that it's a pla I like that. It's a placer for um, me losing my mind, me losing control. I mean, ultimately, if you look at the core of every worry of every anxiety disorder, it's what if I lose control, and yeah. uh, yeah. and and that's it. No is the answer.
3: <laughs> and I think I think you do a great job, um, Josh, of sort of giving that psychoeducation. Because for me, what was really helpful was. I have a lot of derealization. I, I, it comes in and out of my life once a month probably. And so actually being educated on like derealization and what depersonalization is, those those that understanding and psychoeducation can help you to to understand the feeling of going crazy because it does feel like you're going crazy.
1: Mm-hmm. Josh, um do you find that um saying no uh, to some people can can get them in a cycle? and then coming
2: back with another worry. Um, so, do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And I'm sure Drew sees anyone who joins an anxiety group online, and Drew spoke about this before. You know, it is it, there's a fine line with reassurance. Um, there's a factual reassurance and empty reassurance Factual reassurance is actually, you no, know, I've got a new symptom. It is weird. I am a bit scared. And I think it's your due diligence to kind of just check it out. But when you notice that this is tenth different symptom in a week, you've read that it's all to do with anxiety. Each symptom is that uh, related to it. Then, yeah, you, if if I'm if I'm providing empty reassurance, and I'm, that's where I'm very careful as a therapist. If I'm providing empty reassurance, what would an example of empty reassurance be? Um. So a lot of what I hear on on groups is just like, um. Oh I've had this symptom. Has anyone else experienced this like like someone else finding out that someone else has had it had, had it in yeah. some way is kind of relieving for them yeah it' it's, that's empty reassurance because it's not actually addressing the problem um or when it's a constant almost compulsion um but if you're if I had a weird symptom now you know like if, if I suddenly started throwing up and for no reason i'd yeah. want some reassurance from the doctor you know am i all right check my bloods whatever that um much. and that's fine but if every little symptom i start going oh, oh, and, and 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 reacting to that panic response like it's real then i'm just gonna keep i keep getting them and as you'll know anxiety causes hundreds of, f- of physical and mental symptoms anyway so you know you're you ending up jumping through hoops right. yeah
0: but we what? see like, especially in the group, the target will move sometimes or the target stays put and the person will keep coming back again and again and again, say to the schizophrenic question or the overwhelmed question, or whatever their fear is. And but they will know. They'll say like, you know, I know you told me already, and I know what I'm supposed to do. But then it all goes out the window. But it mm-hmm. all goes out the window, and they keep coming back again. And it all goes out the window. So it's either a moving target, or the target just persists, yeah. persists, persists. And that's when it's the most useful to say, then go ahead and go crazy. Go ahead, go ahead. Like it, there's no answer to that. Yeah. Well, well, oh, okay. Yeah. So sorry, we, I can't let jump. We have
3: you. a rule. So uh, with my staff that I train. Um, we have a rule that we do a ton of psychoeducation at the beginning of treatment. And then if the person continues to ask, we don't actually answer it. We will gently just say, I wonder if you can think back to the conversation and then sort of allow them to start to practice the skill on their own of like Josh talked about two weeks ago, I think was like, Um, them working through it themselves, right? Like if you're needing an external factor for reassurance, that's a pretty scary, uncomfortable, not very effective way to be. But if you can have them work through it on their own, I'm wondering if you can think back to the conversation. I've already given you the answer, so I'm wondering if you can actually work through that on your own. And that can be really helpful for the client um, to strengthen that skill.
1: Yeah, I love that. Um, The next question is, um, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing, but I've not had a breakthrough. Um, Is what you guys are telling me true?
0: Yes.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Can I give you my metaphor I use for this? So the metaphor I use is when you plant a seed, like an actual seed, into the ground, you have to wait quite a while before you see that seed sprout. Now, if you, once you plant the seed and then you stand over it and you're like, where are you, where is the plant and where is the tree and is you're going to freak yourself out and probably use a bunch of energy. And a lot of times you've got to give that sprout, that seed time to, to develop what it needs to before you'll see that result. So yes, it does require trust and it does require faith Um, but the thing to remember here is, as I, I often say is, while you're waiting for that seed to come up and actually visually see it, you've also got to check in, was I, what was I doing before? And was that even working? Right? What was, was what I was doing before I started doing all this work? Was that effective? And usually the answer is no. Um, like what I was doing wasn't helping. So something has, I have to do something different. And it may be that you tweak that a little bit, but yeah, it does take a while for the seed to sprout
0: sometimes it it 's more than just doing the things also like because I, I hear that a lot too i 'm doing the things but i 'm doing the things okay well let 's talk about what doing means, and often doing means I am finding a way to try to navigate through these challenges that you say i 'm supposed to face without panicking or without having anxiety. so I engineer them very carefully, or I push through them really quickly and then run back home and whew, I made it, I did it again, I survived. So a lot of times the missing ingredient there is the surrender, is the actual surrender to the, hey, laundry's done, to the uh, (laughs) surrender to the thing that, you know, you fear is going to happen when you're at the supermarket. Let it happen. That's usually the missing ingredient. And I'm doing it, but it's not working. Well, sometimes you're not actually fully letting go, which is the scariest part. It is. So I find that that's what is holding people up a lot of times is the letting go part
1: um josh anything to add to that
2: uh, no i think those answers are great yeah i wish i could yeah
1: um last question um yeah i think it's important one to address if you don't feel comfortable answering just that um did having anxiety i don't feel disorder... comfortable
2: answering did, did, <laughs> have, just...
1: did having anxiety <laughs> di- uh, disorders um affect your orgasm um mine mine is terrible And they want they want reassurance that it's okay that sexual um, you can have
2: sexual symptoms. I think I think it's a great question. Uh, In the midst of panic disorder, nothing was going to happen down there. Panic disorder feels like you've got a gun to your head half time, and unless (laughs) you're into like gun kink porn. It's not, oh. yeah, nothing's going to happen. Like, hey. it's just, uh, like I thought like, this was judgment free here. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> no. Not no, 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 just wasn't going to happen. So, yeah, I mean, um, of course it does because your, your fight, flight, freeze response isn't interested in reproduc- pre- reproducing. The hmm. threat response is interested in keeping you safe, persuading you to avoid and to keep you safe. And so, yeah, like, of course it's going to affect that part of your body yeah and if people are on medication that can affect as well
0: yeah yeah oh god antidepressants so ssris are very if you're on an ssri of some kind very widely known to in fact it's one of those things that you would see in the drug insert or even when they used to advertise them on tv here in the states sexual side effects which is like i don't know here's a magazine here's the remote for Netflix i'll let you know when i'm done like it, it that's what happens with those drugs sometimes so that could be part of it too
3: yeah it was,
2: it was I would, really interesting cuz i've heard at my lake to, at my local sperm clinic that they actually hand out this book so when people <laughs> read i don't
0: think there's such thing as a sperm clinic that, anymore that was the worst <laughs> shoehorning <laughs> ever josh you
1: the they, they hand out <laughs> at your
2: local sperm bank they hand out
0: this and they say, Here's a the
3: room, there's half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Population control, I guess. There is a wonderful, wonderful book called Come As You Are, which discusses this at length using all of the science. And what it talks about is when we're anxious. Um, na- naturally our brain pumps the neurological brakes right it's pumping the brakes all the time which is probably why you're going to fight fright flight and freeze so easily when we pu- when we're in that mode it actually pumps the brakes on arousal as well which you know again so that's sort of like saying the more you lean into fear the more you're actually undoing that system i think the other thing to remember here uh, and this is true particularly of women, but I'm really curious to hear your guys' thoughts as well, is often when we're anxious, we do everything we can to avoid sensations, right? We avoid as much as we can, right? And we're very heady. And that in and of itself can can reduce our ability to actually be in touch with arousal and sexuality, um, and intimacy and so our behaviors it, it is sort of it's sort of the chicken or the egg and so the cool thing is the research is showing is the more you actually practice allowing physical sensations in the body the more you know what they say like you can't just numb the negative if you numb the negative you numb the positive as well um, and so this the science around it is the more you actually lean into that discomfort the more you can connect with that also wonderful arousal as well
1: Josh, um, I just wanted to oh, ask you uh, on a therapy <laughs> yeah. uh, basis. is um, You hear—I don't know. If you, I guess you've heard it—that um, people um, can often put themselves in a state of sexual arousal to, um, so they're not feeling anxious to almost avoid the anxiety. Have you heard that?
2: Yeah, yeah. So if you look at lots of people with porn addictions and things like that, actually, it becomes a sense of a becomes a co- come, has the opposite of what Kimberly is saying in the sense that yeah it's escapism. Mm-hmm. Rather I'm too afraid to sit here with my thoughts and stuff for a bit. So what what do I know that's stimulating enough to keep my attention away uh, and also give me some serotonin and then endorphins and things? Uh, yeah, a lot of people with with porn addictions will actually struggle a lot with anxiety, mm-hmm. um, which is common. You know you're not you're not a freak or whatever. You you look you look at some of the building blocks of what a porn addiction is um And again, in my practice, it's judgment free. You know, the, I, I joke a lot of stuff on here, but st- things like that, I, I don't joke about. You know, you just, it makes sense, doesn't it? I feel scared all the time, and I and I don't want to feel scared all the time, so I look at something else, and you know, you, you, it makes sense when you put when you map it out like that. Mm-hmm. that,
3: that yeah, and I would say too, a lot of people with sexual obsessions engage in mm-hmm. arousal as a form of reassurance of what they are and are not aroused by, um, which is really common with sexual obsessions in OCD. So if you have mm. pedophilia obsessions, you might engage in some arousal or, or the absence of arousal may actually trigger that obsession. What does it mean that I'm not aroused to an adult? Does that mean I'm interested in children and so forth?
2: Yeah, really common that one as well. I, mm-hmm. I get more and more like uh, POCD loads and I'm glad more people talk about it and there's people like you can't believe that talks about it because it's really yeah. common men and yeah. women yeah yeah mm. it's a tough topic too mm. I, I remember
0: posting about that months ago and I mentioned that that intrusive thought about pedophilia and there were some very angry comments on that post mm. anybody who thinks that should immediately be locked up and reported to the authorities so you could see where somebody who's
2: dealing with that subtype has to be yeah. Really, yeah. in a bit. Yeah, they got a lot there. That's why. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just be, it's like you're not your thoughts, mate. Like, mm-hmm. doesn't matter. Like, I'm having a thought now about punching you in the face. You're gonna lock me up. No. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. 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 But it's you're not your thoughts, and that's what, what was, again. Why I, I presume why Kimberly in your practice when you 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 start with lots of layered psychoeducation because it's so important to know that you're not your thoughts.
3: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the cool thing is, is that in our assessment, when someone comes in for the very first time, we actually just hand them this checklist. Like, do you have thoughts of children? Do you have thoughts of being, you know, aroused by the opposite sex or the same sex? And I think people are really reassured, not reassured, but by going, oh, she has it on this list as if it's not Mm. a big deal. And that's really safe for them.
1: Mm. That's brilliant. Uh, Kim, uh, what questions do you have from your lovely community?
3: Sure. All right. So this question I was really excited to to ask you guys is somebody had asked has have you guys you three um, had your anxiety impact your body image how you see yourself in your body?
1: Interesting question. That's, um, a, good, that's I'll, a good question. Yeah, I'll kick off that. I don't think so. Um, Going through an anxiety disorder, um, I, like uh, Drew, uh, turned to exercise for it really helpful. Did I get addicted to the results? Possibly. Um, So maybe I had a little bit of an addiction uh, to seeing, obviously, these positive results by doing it, but nothing directly with me.
0: Yeah, I would say me either. It's a really good question and an interesting topic, but I don't think I ever really had a link between my anxiety problems and the way I saw my, my myself physically. They just weren't ever linked for whatever reason.
2: So I'm sorry I don't have a good answer for that. Um, I, for me, only at, at, a, at a at a low level, yeah. I mean, I've I'm always image for a lot of people, um, women and men, or however you, whatever pronoun you choose to subscribe to. Um, Or use, or what I meant to say, was that image has always kind of been drip fed to us all throughout our lives. Uh, for me, it was, I grew up in a town where there was so much emphasis on men being big and muscly. I mean, obviously, it's, it's it's a societal trope anyway, but there was a particular emphasis in the town that I grew up in where almost everyone had to go to the gym and look big, and because it was a rugby town as well, so everyone mm. had to look big, big and strong, so like that. And I remember distinctly between the ages of sixteen to twenty-one, thinking that I wasn't good enough because I wasn't I didn't look like how people wanted how I should look, how people wanted to see me. And I look back at pictures of me sixteen to nine to twenty one, I'm like, God, you look great. <laughs> you know, like you you look really good. And I never thought I did. I never thought I was good enough. And you know, when you look back and think, Actually, you know, you—it's you, all in here that was that yeah. you were struggling with. Um, but yeah, no, um, I also work with people with body dysmorphia, uh, who, who genuine people with body dysmorphia that's usually associated with a steam-related depression. Uh, we're to the point where kind of there's almost a, dissoci- a, a dissociation between you and how you see yourself. So people with body dysmorphia can have the the conventionally most aesthetic body in the world but what they see in the mirror is not the person that everyone else sees. Mm. And then therefore that you see things through a dysmorphic lens, a bit like a circus mirror. You've ever been in a crazy fun house You see the circus mirrors and they're all warped. That's a bit kind of like, that's, you're going into body dysmorphia territory. Uh, people who don't understand body dysmorphia start to reassure them mentally Go, look, you look great. Here's a picture of you, et cetera, et cetera. But you're f- almost feeding the obsession there. Actually, body dysmorphia is, is, is how we see ourselves and actually you can go pretty deep mm. in the sense of where that comes from um but i wouldn't say that was necessarily related directly to anxiety disorders i'd say that's more of a depression uh, topic in my opinion
1: mm. kim i can see a few of the uh women uh, in the comments are asking for your opinion on that
3: Sure. Well, I mean, I had an eating disorder, so mine was directly related to the body image, and I had a. Um, I mean, I think societally, there's a lot of similar to what Josh said. I think for women, there's a lot of pres- pressure to be thin, um, it, you know, or to be a certain body size. So for me, absolutely, what um, I'll share a story, and I may have shared this with you before, but it's interesting for the the how you conceptualize an eating disorder is. I'll always remember my therapist, my eating disorder therapist, telling me about how once her son was very, very sick with um, with cancer. And after she'd been recovered for like 20 years, finding out her son had cancer, she said the first thing she thought about was I should go on a diet um like that was her instinct that's the eating disorder piece right which is like i'll fix this by reducing my body i'll fix this by controlling this one thing that's not related and i that story always really resonated for me because if i'm anxious i do notice my brain goes to body right like oh just go on a diet if i just train a bit harder until i'm like wait like I'm anxious about work. How is that going to fix that kind of thing? So for me, it's very related, but I can observe it now and just be like, oh, like, okay, <laughs> okay, brain, good one. You know what I mean? But yeah, I think for women, it, I think when we feel out of control, that's one thing we feel like we can control.
2: It goes the opposite way as well in the sense that, I mean, walk into any gym and see, don't get me wrong, I've got some really cool bodybuilding friends, mm-hmm. but look—you walk into some things, and I see some people that are, not, and I go, it, and I suppose it is me being judgmental because I don't know their story or stuff like that. But there is a part of me that goes too far, mate. Like, the, like you, you, in the changing rooms, like injecting steroids and stuff, and getting massive, and taking years off their life because they got this element of control of what, what their body looks like. I've got pecs and muscles, and don't even you know the the bodybuilding thing is obviously something I don't know too much of, but there are people taking it too far, and it's so I've in the past uh, through my experience I've found that it, you know it can often relate to the control element that Kim was talking yeah. about. It's
3: called bigorexia, right? I, I was form just going to say that it's a thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Bigorexia is a form that's, of. That's of it. A form of body control by uh becoming very very muscular yeah. and toned
2: yeah. absolutely awesome it's just people that are really into bodybuilding yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah. right well i think again yeah. it's sort of that question of are you doing it to manage anxiety or are you doing yes. it because it just genuinely you know makes you happy
2: yeah definitely
3: that
1: mm-hmm. uh what's the next question
3: kim um okay this is um i actually had the schizophrenia question but here is a question i think we asked this once before way when we started in clubhouse but one of the questions was would you ask each of the wonderful people here how much erp you did daily for recovery every day exposure
1: yeah every day for me um that was the number one well At the start of anxiety disorder, the the psychoeducation was really important to know what the symptoms were doing. And and knowing that took away some of the fear. But to actually get over the anxiety disorder, um, it was self-help. So literally on the internet, self-help CBT. Knowing some of the background as well because of the psychology background I have. But just putting myself into into the situations that brought on the panic attacks. Uh, And that was my number one. Um, way of overcoming an anxiety disorder and I I know you guys can relay it
0: yeah every day
3: for how long like how what how how many minutes
0: Um, oh um, well for me I I wasn't doing ERPs because it was just for me it was just you know exposure so it wasn't specifically OCD ERP based but I was probably averaging You know, some days I'd probably spend an hour or two. Some days I might only spend twenty minutes. So I I didn't have like a super rigid schedule with that, but I I made sure that I was at it every single day, usually multiple times a day, because my particular exposure, I was able to do that. So I'd go out in the morning, then I'd go out in the afternoon again, and I would, you know, just trying to repeat things as often as I possibly could. But yeah, every single day for months on end. And it and it mattered. It made a difference. It was slow in the beginning, but and it was scary, but you know, down the road, it actually helped. So yeah, I was spending at least a half hour a day average, I would say at least probably more.
2: For me, it was initially the first time round. it was every moment I wasn't distracted. Um, so in the midst of panic disorder, it was, that's the time to practice being anxious. But I, for me, it was always practicing with my attention. Mm-hmm. So I always see like attention as outwards. If i catching myself, with my attention going inwards, being like, nah, mate, outwards again, sitting with that discomfort, and um, every moment when I wasn't distracted, because when you're distracted, it's easy. I'm not even anxious. I'm distracted. I feel normal. It's the moments in between distraction that where the exposure, of the ERP works, particularly as someone who struggles with, the, uh, you know, or who has struggled, and my, my OCD just does, does come up now and then. It's purely mental OCD, um, pure O and and you, once you're on the hamster wheel sometimes it's very difficult um but sometimes but in the evening when I was calm I'd be like well non-anxious me would be chilling out watching TV so I'll do that that's why my magic rule in my practice is do wh- what would non anxious you be doing right now and try to simulate that as best as you can uh fake it till you make it and like, what that's isn't that isn't that ignoring the anxiety I'm like no it's not you're accepting the anxiety but your brain also is aware that you had a life before it so why don't you try and do what you did before then whilst accepting being anxious whilst willfully tolerating the anxiety and actually the old neuro pathways still exist the old neuro pathways from previous anxious use still exist so that's why my golden rule is do what non-anxious you would do and see what happens whilst committing your attention external You're not running away. You're not you're not don't run away from it like, oh my God, what would non-anxious me do? I need to run away. No, just okay, I'm anxious, but what would non-anxious me do right now? And I'll do that whilst being anxious. And that's what I would do. That was my exposure, my ERP, whatever you want to call it. That takes me back to um
1: what my therapist said at the time uh, which was really important because when you're in the midst of an anxiety disorder you really can't see the light and you, you you think you summoned yourself to feeling like this forever and they said listen Dean you've had 22 years without this look at what you was like before this anxiety disorder of course you're going to come out of this of course there's going to be life after this this is just a period in your life where the fight or flight system is misfiring uh, and we just need to teach it that there is no fear. And by doing that, you expose yourself to the perceived fear.
0: Yeah. Well, I would add what Josh was saying, where like anytime you weren't anxious or distracted was exposure time. I found, and I don't know if you guys would agree with this, the more work I did specifically planned, specifically to be an exposure activity, the more it started to roll over into the other parts of the day and night. So if I, my anxiety got, you know, was swelling up because I had maybe a heated exchange with a vendor or an argument or, you know, whatever, I just had a strong emotion that, tri- that morphed into anxiety. I was able to more quickly use the tools that I was practicing every day in the car and on the highway and in the supermarket and doing those things. It, it spilled over. So it mattered. The more I used that muscle, the, the more I was able to flex that muscle when I needed to. So I, I think time is important. The more you practice, the more it rolls over into the other parts of your life. So people get confused, like, well, I have to practice driving and then I have to practice going to concerts and I have to practice going to a restaurant. I have to practice like arguing with my husband. No, no. If you practice the restaurant, then the arguing with your husband will get better too automatically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do that. Yeah.
3: Thank you. I'm good to go,
1: uh, Josh. Any questions? Well,
2: yeah, have you got any questions? Me, I haven't got any questions this week, but I can I can muster some from previous emails if you would like. Unless you guys have got more questions, right. I've been off. I've been having a week away. Uh, I don't I, I, I hold, buried I in questions. Tub. Tub. Oh, right, here we
1: go. Yeah, <laughs> question
2: master. It was nice. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. I, I got a, a ton
0: of questions. They're the most questions ever. Here's an interesting question. This comes from a person that I know is a practicing psychologist in South America. He asked about, and I guess, Kim, I, I'd like to hear your, your view on this. And then Josh definitely is rumination focused ERP. Have you heard of this mm-hmm. where, and this is a, admittedly, there's no research behind this. It's a theory and a different framework. Where first, before ERP will be useful, you have to learn, the patient has to learn to not ruminate so that they are not anxious when they are engaged in the exposures. So it's almost like a pre-diffusing of the bomb before you go into the the diffusing of the bomb. I don't know what I think about that. I've done a little bit of reading on it, but what are your thoughts on that? And admittedly, by the way, the folks that are proponents of this do say, they, they say, yes, this runs counter. To that whole habituation model, they they admit that it just seems right. like well, it seems it would be better if you could bring the anxiety level down and then do the exposure.
3: Well, I think I think it depends on again intention. So, I mean, we used to we used to use so so let me give a quick background. We used to use a habituation model for ERP, but research has since shown that using a habituation model has a higher relapse rate. Than those where we just practice, um, you know, what we call, uh, you know, ultimately flipping, you know, not having a hierarchy and doing exposures at all different ranges and in many contexts as we can, um, and and that's been very very effective in the treatment I've done and in all of the research. Um, I think what what there are pros and cons to this method. I think the concern with it is. It's, it's sort of a little bit like saying, don't think about white elephants. When you tell someone not to think about white elephants, they're thinking about white elephants in, in effort to not think about white elephants and they can get stuck, particularly if you have a very strong o- OCD like brain. Um, so I, I think it's a, it's a version of this inhibitory model and in that you can, you can go to working on response prevention, which is ultimately what they're saying. They're just saying we're doing response prevention before we do exposure. Um, You can do that, but I think you run the risk of getting the client to this idea of thinking that they shouldn't have fear. And it sort of makes fear out to be the bad guy.
0: Yeah, it seems like the the assertion here is that anxiety is all based on rumination and cognition and therefore is impervious to habituation, which, yeah. uh, you know, I understand there are, there are drawbacks to habituation, but there's also a lot of data that supports it, so I don't
3: know. Right, I think, I think you have to depend on the client.
2: Yeah. I, I'd need to do some more reading on it, but like, um, I'm interested. I'm not gonna dismiss it. Um, for me, it, it, it draws comparisons already. Uh, where, where there is data is metacognitive therapy. And that is the idea, like you said, that your attention is like a muscle and that can be trained not whilst the amygdala, they believe that whilst the amygdala is not activated, whilst you're not in a state of threat, training your attention muscle is still effective even when you're calm. And actually they say to not rely on the attention training, the, the attention training technique uh, as, a, as a source of reassurance, you must only practice attention training whilst you are calm. Otherwise, it turns into a false comfort or an empty reassurance or, or a technique that you use. And, and and that reminded me of that because actually attention training when you're calm is in a sense stopping rumination. And it's something I struggle with. Rumination is is wonderful when you ruminate on something creative, but terrible when you ruminate on something that has no answers. Um, I'm really interested to read on it. (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to dismiss it because, and I even just had a quick look then, they've they've openly said, listen, I get it, but here's what my opinion is. I like listening to people's opinions. And I will bet my bottom dollar it has overlaps with metacognitive therapy, which Mm -hmm. does have research and data, quite overwhelming research and data, suggesting that it's almost 20% more has a twenty percent more efficacy than CBT, which is really interesting. So um, yeah, I don't know. i definitely that's that's how I spend my weekend, ladies and gentlemen. I will read about modalities of therapy while you're actually living a fun life.
1: <laughs> did they? Uh,
2: Drew, He'll did get that psychologist?
1: <laughs> um, did they um, give you their opinion, or did they just ask a
0: question?
2: He he didn't.
0: He just asked the question. So, oh, I, you know, I can certainly reach out, I guess, and see what his opinion is. But um, it is fascinating. I, I I read for about an hour and a half last night. I mean, it was 2 a.m., so I can't really say. Oh, that you're much. a loser,
2: but, too. Yes. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I'm not going to
0: lie. <laughs> team's hashtag so sad. But uh, it's interesting because you're right. The proponents really are saying, like, look, this just seems like common sense. Like the exposure should be more effective if you bring down the distress level beforehand. But maybe like Josh said, it just could be a practicing, a more effective way to pass through the discomfort yeah, yeah, before
2: because, you do it. Because my, my OCD side of things, is that I've done conventional exposure with the agoraphobia and stuff, and that's great. But I've stood in the middle of the woods with no false comforts, and, everything, and the rumination has been inwards.
3: And so, yes,
2: yeah. the amygdala realized that the woods wasn't scary. But the actual thoughts that, and, the, and the process, the hamster wheel, or in metacognitive therapy, they call it the cast. They've actually given it a name. I mean, it's called cognitive attentional syndrome, which is, I mean, not, not one not a name to introduce on a first date. But it's called the <laughs> called the cast. And and I love this idea. Yeah, about, the cats <laughs> yeah, yeah. like, They call it the cast, and it's, it's this idea that when the cast becomes activated, the proponents of the cast are rumination threat monitoring and um, exploring what ifs, as well as avoiding behaviours. Avoid and I think there will be a lot of overlapping on this. I genuinely do. Uh, what I will tell you is that the guy's being open and transparent and not telling you that he's trying to cure you. So if you come across any anxiety sites that say they're going to cure you or whatever and use all these words, just avoid them. And I'm talking <laughs> to you, Charles Linden and Beth Linden, I'm talking to you. Stop doing that to people. Sorry, Carol.
3: That's That's the only avoidance you will put your stamp of approval on. Avoid the Linden method (laughs) like it was the plague.
2: Yes. (laughs) Self-harm. Not harm OCD,
0: but people who self-harm in response to being anxious or depressed. You know how, how do I deal with that? How do you deal with self harming as a response to anxiety and depression? It's a, it's a good question. I don't think we've ever talked about this.
1: Um, yeah, I think I think we addressed like, um, the like hurt pulling, didn't we? And um, uh, skin picking mm. as a form of self harm. So it all depends, obviously, what intensity is that. But obviously, if they've got issues with self harm, the first thing you need to do is obviously seek the right help. Um, never never suffer in silence um and there there's really good methods and i'm sure you can explore uh, that came in in helping people um to to choose alternatives
3: right i think so we have a couple of um you know we have what we call suicidal self harm and we also have non suicidal self harm so i think it's important to di- first differentiate between the two um, a lot of people, like in front, in the OCD world, I think it's like 80% of people have some kind of suicidal ideation at some point. Um, I think that would be true for a lot of those strong e- anxiety disorders. Um, so it's important that you get assessed, but there is a great deal of people and population who have non-suicidal self-harm, but they're, su- they're engaging in a ha- harm behavior because they are either dealing with so much pain, they want to physically feel a way to feel it, or they're just so dissociated that they want to feel some kind of pain because they don't understand what's happening in their body. Um, there, are, I think it's really important first that we don't stigmatize this, right? Because so many people are afraid to tell their doctor or their therapist or their parent what they're doing, um, or their partner. Um, and then I think the other thing is, it's important that you understand that there are skills. Um, that can help get through and ride that wave so that you're not at risk. Um, A lot of that is called dialectical behavioral therapy. It's a kind of cognitive behavioral therapy that helps give you skills to manage very strong emotions or the absence of strong emotions um, in those times, so I would always you know look there are some great DBT workbooks that can help and normalize these behaviors, right? There are ways to engage in these kinds of behaviors um, that aren 't at risk right and, and one of those I know we 've kind of made jokes in the past around the use of ice, but ice is actually one of the um, highest level of success to help with self harm in this particular situation.
2: Um, no definitely
0: there's a difference there's yes. a difference definitely yeah, yeah. it's
3: yeah. a it's the skill called tip it's an acronym and it's the most well-known and highest successful treatment for people who are having that high level which is the use of temperature which is ice i've had clients who just literally run and jump into the snow which that shock to the system can at least help them to feel that sort of pain, but not induce pain. Um, the second one is intense exercise, usually for about 20 seconds. And the last, the P is for progressive muscle relaxation. So using your tip skills can get you through those intense things. And then you would go into using your other DBT skills.
1: That's really, really useful that can.
2: Great answer. Um, Really good. I like how you mentioned DBT as well, which is another modality of therapy. Um, When I've had clients that have had anxiety, trauma, a lot of things going on, actually, uh, that are perhaps outside the scope of my expertise. uh, I've always heard that DBT has been quite quite good for those clients. I've, I've had good feedback from it as well. Which um, yeah. which I'm encouraged can by.
1: someone give just a brief explanation of what DBT is for people who might not know?
3: Sure. So DBT is dialectical behavioral therapy. So the the idea of dialectics is instead of it being black and white, that it the, it's the idea that two opposing truths can be true at the same time. So instead of saying I can't handle this, I have to harm. In this case, the dialectics will be. I'm going to have the feeling that I can't handle this while I don't self-harm and that those two truths can be very true and possible at the same time instead of seeing it very black and white. Now, what that allows us to do is to be able to engage in life while we have the high level of distress, right? It's Because often when we're in distress, we say if-then statements like, if only I didn't have this, well, then I could be... Fine, or you know, and so basically, dialectics is bringing these two truths together so that they're kind of like they're merging and existing at the same time. I can be uncomfortable and function at the same time. I can have a self harm thought and not self harm at the same time. I can be suicidal and reach out for help or take care of myself or ask, you know, get whatever it may be, you know, engage in washing the dishes at the same time.
1: Yeah, what a great description. And you Can see we, on Instagram, really awesome. yeah, um, you see on Instagram, don't you? Some of the like the columns where people uh, are sharing the, uh, the psychoeducation in posts. I've seen that, so that's really useful. Yeah.
0: Can we talk? I'll go on to the next question because I think it's a shorter one. But where's that? It's always everything's a matter of degree, right? So when you're talking about those DBT skills and tip that strategy. How how extreme does it get? And I think there's a lot of confusion because people will say it's the difference between somebody who is afraid that they will lose control and somebody who actually is. So, for instance, I've heard it described as the person who interprets panic as putting them in such a state where they throw themselves on the ground. They are screaming. They are rocking. They they literally go to a different place, which is something that so many people are afraid they will do. They never do. So where is that line? Like as clinicians, where do you tell somebody, OK, you know, in this situation, no, don't jump into the snow. Don't use the ice. You're not that person. Right. But so hard because it's a gray area. Right. And sometimes one episode might feel different than another. So what do we tell people? What would you tell somebody?
1: Would you say place? would you guys say it's a progressive thing to, to work away from it gradually?
3: Yeah, I think of it like a bridge behavior, right? So if you're in a situation, I always love the – there's a video when you get trained in DVT and there's a guy who works at Starbucks or the equivalent to Starbucks and he has anger issues, right? And he's been in trouble a lot for punching, you know, people in the face, right? So he's in a situation where I he's standing – I can relate
2: the- Starbucks,
3: okay. yeah. <laughs> And I love this visual and I tell this to my clients. He's standing behind the counter and the guy in front who's ordering is a total asshole, excuse so my language. But – And so he's standing there. And in that moment, he's noticing a rising anger and a rising distress. He needs to ask himself, am I able to cope with this effectively? And if I am, he doesn't need tip because he's engaging in a better effective skill. And then if that, he would use his effective skill. But if he asks himself that question, no, I'm not going to handle this correctly. I'm about to punch this customer. Well, then he would engage in tip. And he would use it. It's usually 30 seconds. It's not something he would do for an hour. It's a quick thing to help you sort of reset a little and to gather yourself. Then you go back to your skills. It's not like you would stay in that behavior. So really, we engage in in TIP and any of those. There's so many acronyms in DBT, but you engage in it if you're in going to engage in something ineffective.
0: That's a great explanation. If I had a heart button, I would hit it. It's really good. Thank <laughs> you, can. <laughs> wow. yeah the
1: I goal is the I goal, think goal think is, is to not
3: need to use it as much as uh, every day the goal is that you would use the other four components of dbt um and not just that one
2: yeah Listen, to to is when in david I, I, in, in david carbonell's short fear of flying book he explains it so well as well if you want to like uh, read even if you don't have a fear of flying read that book because he, he he distinguishes between Actually, most people who who have a fear of flying are afraid of the fear that Kimberly's just been saying. That oh my God, I'm not afraid of the plane crashing. I'm afraid of me going to a state that I, I can't get, and I'm rolling around, and I'm punching, and I'm uh, going to. And he addresses that very humor very humorously. <laughs> but he said ultimately, he says though, if you've got a history of it, it's pretty obvious. But if you haven't got a history of it, you can assume it won't happen. And I just, I, I just like that answer a lot. Cool. I'll take the last one before we wrap it up.
0: Yeah. Go, go for it, right? So I know this is an important question for this person. How do I learn to trust my body again? (sighs) Which I think is, we probably talk about this really indirectly all the time, but I think this is a big issue for a lot of people who suffer. How do I learn? Because that's what we're telling them to do. You're going to have to trust that your body will get you through this. It's not betraying you.
1: Can can I, I know I'm talking a lot. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people with anxiety recovery think that the there's like a finish line and when when you get across that finish line, everything's beautiful and rosy and you're never gonna feel anxiety again. And I think a lot of people and, and it might be to do with um mismarketing of people saying that anxiety cures and things like that. Um I think it's important to know that you you can get through it and um you might not know when when you're when you when you have recovered. You might just be getting on with your everyday life, but not feeling the anxiety. So the or the anxiety might be there, and you might not be changing your behaviour uh, to the anxiety. So you like uh, Josh talks about willful tolerance. You you're letting the anxiety in, but you're not changing your behaviour.
2: Um. Trial and error, testing, So following what Dean said, like, yeah, learn the anxiety and not changing your behavior. It's amazing what you do there is you start to reenact kind of or doing if you've been anxious for a lot of your life, hypothetically doing what not anxious you would do. And I've done this with clients. I've sit there, I write down like, if you weren't anxious now, write out your plan of the week. Write me out a week you would do if you weren't anxious. Well, I'd probably go and feed the ducks and see visit my auntie and go to the supermarket and then maybe I'd go for a hike and stuff. And then what that amount great. That's what non anxious you would do. I mean, obviously, the first, you know, you, you take out the silly answers, but they're always a laugh uh, to bond. But, you know, well, realistically, what you do in a week, and then there's your exposure plan. And then that's when you can start to show, well, let's see if your body lets you down or not. Now, we've done the psychoeducation. I'm saying it won't. You've got no proof to say it will let you down. So let's take our theories and apply it to this. What would you usually do? And that sort of thing. And, and it's quite amazing. I've actually, over the last two, two, three months, I've got a load of all my desktop wallpapers. Are of when clients have taken a picture of a hill or a, or, a, or a landscape that they've taken uh, when when trying trying their agrophobia. Obviously, with not they they're not in it. That's a bit weird, but like they've taken it with their with with with, with their phones and you know of, of like a hill or a waterfall or a lake where they've been practicing and, uh, their exposure or whatever, or even just bits of their life. I've got one where someone took a picture of outside their work because it was they got a job or something like that. For me, I, I am quite sentimental now and then, despite coming across as quite heartless and cold. And, um, yeah, I just think it, it, it's wonderful. And that's how to trust your body again. Trial and error. must be one of the Fruit.
1: most um, rewarding things that, as a therapist, I imagine.
2: It is. Yeah, it is. Uh, I, yeah, it definitely is. It's well, worth, it's well worth the hours of it not being rewarded.
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jim, what were you going to say? I have a I have a different opinion on this. Not that I disagree with anything anyone's saying, but usually when I'm a big fan of asking really good questions. And if somebody asks me how they can trust again, I usually ask them what are they actually asking for? Because what when what is the benefit of trust, really? How does that benefit us in this situation? Most of the time, people think that trust will mean they don't have to feel uncertain anymore. And if you're, if you're looking for that life, you might be going in the wrong direction because life is uncertain, right? Life is uncertain. Trust isn't a thing that happens by default, in my opinion. It's a choice. It's an action. It's, you don't fall upon trust. It's something that you do right? It's a thing you do. And so if someone says, how can I one day feel, trust myself? I'll say, you can do it right now. It's an action that you do, right? But similar to what Josh is saying, that will require that you don't engage in safety behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. It's not not, how can I figure out how to feel this feeling? It's no, it's something you do and you can do it right now, so I don't, I, I don't, I never get buy into this idea of like one day at the end of treatment you are just gonna trust yourself so much. It's like no, it's right here. You, it's going to, it's going to mean that you have to not engage in safety behaviors,
2: mm.
3: right? That's not easy to hear, but it's, it's the that's the way that it is. It that's that dialectical. You that's the dialectics. You can t- practice being trust, you know, trusting. Right, mm. but that doesn't mean it's the absence of uncertainty. Both exist at the same time.
2: I, I would argue yeah, that yeah. is a part it. of it, though. I think.
3: Yes, know, yes.
2: When when you when you yes. just do things a few times, you start. I always get this. I don't know about you, Kimberly or whatever, or Dean and Drew, but like when I ask people to start a therapy, "What do you want to get from therapy?" They always say, "I want to. I want to feel normal again." And what they mean that is, like, when they look around them and go you know okay so you're saying i need to be okay with uncertainty but why you know when i look at my partner or my sister when i'm going on a walk with them they're not willingly practicing uncertainty they're mm-hmm. just assuming they're okay and yeah. that's what i mean by habituation. Is that if you do something enough you'll just assume you're okay and there's yeah. no crime in assuming you're all right yeah you know and i think that when everything becomes you yeah. have to tolerate uncertainty personally i think that's quite like it gets quite overwhelming if it's a theme of ocd i do think yeah you've got to tolerate the uncertainty around it but i think sometimes sometimes things are just do it a few times and see what happens and you just don't think about it again (laughs) genuinely genuinely that's i think with with some aspects of anxiety and anxiety particularly agoraphobia yeah that's a really
1: good point (laughs) point that you raised just um because like you say a lot of people they think to before they have the anxiety disorder and they're not having to go around and 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 be okay with the sweat and be okay with the heart racing so
2: why should they be on recovery and they get angry at that as well they get they get angry at why they have to do it why does everyone else have, why is everyone else fine and not me etc etc um if you've got like if it, if you're going down a deep OCD hole that I've been down then yeah unfortunately you've just got to do, do your homework you know, if Kimberly says do this, then do it because you're absolutely right. Those safety behaviors are sort of not getting you anywhere. But with it, depending on what the anxiety is, sometimes when you just do it a couple of times, you're all right. You know, it's a bit like my friend Max when he was literally he was bitten by a dog. But, you know, slowly but surely, he just introduced him to dogs again and now he doesn't give a shit. You know, he's not even stood there going, I'm OK with the uncertainty that the cessation may tap me. He's just like, I just assume it won't happen and that's fine you know, because that's what everyone else does. But you're right, it just depends, like, when I always have an OCD theme, I always have to say to myself, right, you just got to practice with uncertainty with this theme now. Because the other themes, yeah, they don't even feel important anymore, do they? This one now feels important. It's like, oh, yeah, well, shut up, fuck off, and blah, blah, whatever. And away you go again. So it depends on the worry, I think, and and how you can habituate to it and how entrenched it is and and the, and the mechanisms behind it, too. I
0: think what the target is. So I mean, I have an unfair advantage. Because I know the person who asked the question, so I'm going to speak a little bit directly to her. How can I trust my body? I know what she's actually asking is: How can I be sure that my body won't do these things anymore? How how will I know that it won't do these things anymore? Well, you can't be. You don't know that it might do those things. It's designed to do those things. It's supposed to do those things when there is a threat. So you have to trust. It's not that you have to want to trust that your body won't won't give you those scary sensations. You have to trust that your body will when it needs to, but if it does it when it doesn't need to, you're trusting your own ability to just move through those things. To cope. So be careful about the tie. It's a code, right? So, Kim, you you said it. And I think we can all agree, by the way, that Kim is actually winning the internet today, like on fire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. really you, good. You I'm A-game just enjoying just listening.
3: <laughs> I won.
0: <laughs> yeah. you, you brought the A game. Yeah, I did. No doubt
3: about that. I've been doing my therapist push-ups over here before the session. (laughs) Guys, I think think that's uh, an hour,
1: so I think that's a great place to leave it. Um, Kim, the crown goes to you today. Absolutely fantastic. Oh, we we turn into a a game show. That'd
2: be so fun. I I tell you what, Um, what, the troll gets to pick the winner. (laughs) yes yeah I well then I win every
1: week I win every week
0: top of the list automatically
1: (laughs) let's just go around the room where can everyone find you Kim
3: uh I am on I'm at Kimberly Quinlan on Instagram you can I have a podcast called Your Anxiety Toolkit um and you can get me at, if you're interested in any kind of courses on OCD you can get me at cbtschool.com Fantastic
2: Josh uh you can get me at anxiety Josh podcast it's called the Panic Pod uh this book uh, like I shamelessly plugged before written by Dean and I doing really well um currently writing a book on intrusive thoughts that I'm going to send over to Kim to uh, proofread for me and give, get the seal of approval um because there's no better person to look through it and, yeah yeah um keep out keep a look out these. i'm back now from my instagram hiatus so i'll cre- create some uh content with shameless plugs of the book at the end Don't for that and mm. drew mm. <laughs> instagram was much less spicy while you were gone by the way yeah, mm-hmm. but, oh, yeah. i need to come back with a big spicy one like well, like though, and, you, and your though, doctor uh, is wrong, or something like that. You. <laughs> you, you know
0: what it was, right? It was a crapshoot, and I thought you were going to try and work that into it. Oh, no, I had to teach okay, Josh okay. the phrase "crapshoot," the American phrase "crap." Shoot. He's like, "What is I've that?" Been learning wait,
2: Americanisms.
0: that's <laughs> so good. Anyway. You know, um, you guys can find me at the.anxious.truth. The. I like how I say the, like the Ohio State University. It's, it's the.anxious.truth. <laughs> the anxious truth, not the, the. Uh, anyway, the.anxious.truth. And like all my stuff is just follow the bio and there's all the links are there. So Fantastic. come on by. Everybody's
1: welcome. Thank yeah. you so much, everyone, for taking the time, out, um, and great answers. Enjoy your weekend, everyone. Bye. Later. Happy Friday. Later, guys. Happy Friday. Come by. Yeah.
0: You've been listening to DLC Live. Be sure to follow Dean on Instagram at dlcanxiety. Check our website at dlcanxiety.com and grab yourself a copy of our latest book, Untangle Your Anxiety, on Amazon today. See you next time.